I'll be reading this morning from Ezekiel 37, verses 21 through the end of the chapter. Uh, God had been telling Ezekiel to make two sticks, one for Israel, one for Judah. And now he's going to tell them what to say when people ask him, what, are they, what is that about? And say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be king over all of them. And they will no longer be two nations. They will no longer be divided into two nations, kingdoms. And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they will be my people and I will be their God. And my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them, uh, them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And all the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Heavenly Father, when we wait upon you, we know that there's going to be things that are going to come that we can't even imagine. We try, but we see uh, times where servants have seen a glimpse of the future and they fall on their faces. Father, we long for that time. We know that we also need to be cleansed. And we know that when you come, that's one of the wonderful things is you will be removing all evil and sin from us that know you. And you'll be making us like yourself. We long for that. Help us to see more of you today to allow you to begin that process even now. Be with Tom as he teaches. Give him words that will help us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. It's, uh, it's very good to be back. I uh, spent the last five weeks in the high school group, and we went from Leviticus through Deuteronomy in five Sundays. <laughs> so now you guys know I can actually cover a lot of stuff in, at one time. It's, it is possible, but we're not going to do that today. No, actually, that's exactly what we're going to do today. Yeah, in fact, I was, as I was working on this morning, I, I couldn't help remembering that one time in, in uh, Troas, Paul started preaching and then he kept preaching and he preached till midnight until some kid fell off a wall and died. Paul had to bring him back to life. So that's what you can expect today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, not really. Um, in a few weeks, we're going to begin a series on the book of Acts, Lord willing. But between now and then, uh, I asked the elders if I could do this short three-message series on the central promise of the Bible, and they said yes. Uh, next month marks my 50th birthday in the Lord. Uh, 
And this topic has been part of that entire journey and process from, from when I was very young in the Lord. I've been thinking about this. And so it's actually very daunting to me to even try to approach this. Uh, but but I, I just pray that God will, will show you things that are marvelous through his word. Um, anytime someone stands before you and says they're going to tell you the central promise of the Bible, uh, you should approach everything that comes after that with a great deal of skepticism, right? And so the first ground rule for this little series is you've got to make me prove it. Um, and so we're going to look at a lot of scripture, and I believe, I believe this, this promise is, is magnificent truth that is woven from beginning to end throughout God's word. And it's powerful. It is so very powerful. It goes right to the core of the hope that is the anchor of our souls. Uh, Second uh, thing that I, I think I want to make real clear at the outset is when I talk about the central promise of the Bible, that is not the same thing as the central purpose of God and the Bible. The promise flows from the purpose. And I've been reading uh, a strong recommendation of my brother Bob and Carrie and some others. I've been reading uh, John Piper's new book, Providence, which is really excellent. And, and he says that the central purpose of God in his creation is that he will bring about the praise of the glory of his grace. Uh, this promise flows from that purpose. And, uh, and, and both are, are magnificent truths. Today we're going to look at the promise in the Old Testament. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll look at the promise in the New Testament, same promise. And then finally, in a couple of weeks, we will consider the fulfillment of the promise. And the passages that speak of that fulfillment are in both testaments of the Bible. The central promise of the Bible has three parts. People, place, and blessing. People, place, and blessing. And the blessing is fundamentally relational. Uh, there's a great word, great Hebrew word that shows up over and over in the Old Testament, and it's shalom. And we typically translate it peace, but it goes much further than peace in the sense of the absence of conflict between two parties. Biblical shalom is pervasive well-being in all aspects of life, and there's only one way that human beings have it, and that is if they are in right relationship with the living God. That's what shalom is, and that's where shalom comes from. Uh, that is the very essence of blessedness and of the blessing that this promise has in focus. Another thing about this promise is that <laughs> it is dependent on and it is realized through a person, one person. And that person is spoken of from, be from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. It's always the same person, and the promise absolutely depends on this person. So we'll be talking a lot about that, that person, who is, of course, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Three pieces to the promise, people, place, and blessing. And I, I'm going to very often put up the words blessed relationship because, again, the blessing is about relationship. It's about being connected with the living God, rightly related to God. First, people. In the garden, in, when, when, God, when God first created uh, all things in six days, on that sixth day, he created the pinnacle of his creation, which was man. He created man 
like God, in the image of God, but distinct from God, infinitely distinct from God as the creature is from the creator. But even before God breathed the breath of life into the first man, he prepared a place for his people, a place of, of boundless abundance of provision and beauty and blessing, a place that was filled with every created thing that mankind could need or desire that was worthy of being desired. Again, by blessed relationship, we're talking about much more than relationship without conflict. We're talking about, in what, we, what we find in the garden is a relationship of shared purpose, of intimate, personal, and mutual enjoyment between God and man, and between the man and the woman. Even in the physical oneness and intimacy that, that Adam and Eve enjoyed with one another, two made, made one flesh by the perfect design of God, that intimacy with one another proceeded from intimacy with God. And then, of course, what we find in chapter 3 is the fall. Adam, uh, succumbing to the, to the temptation of Satan and to the leadership of his wife, uh, he chose his word over God's word. Adam chose his word over God's word. And all three parts of God's design were badly, badly damaged. The image of God in man was corrupted. Adam and Eve were cast out of the place of abundance. And their agency, their representation of God in the world was corrupted. God created man to be to do his work, his way, in his creation as the only beings that were created like him and thus enabled to act in that role of dominion over, the, over this, this earthly domain that God had entrusted to them. Uh, the intimacy that they had known between themselves and God became enmity, and not just enmity with God, but enmity with one another. So all parts of God's design were damaged. But then in chapter 3, in the same chapter that records the fall and the curse, <laughs> we find that there's a person, a person who will fight to restore God's design and he will win. He will crush the head of Satan, and he is called the seed of the woman. And we will have much to say about this person as we proceed. After the fall, uh, things didn't get better. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, we find that God looks down at his creation and he sees that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil, continually. I, I don't know how you could express that in any worse terms. Only evil, continually. And so God judged mankind with a cataclysmic flood. He judged the whole of man's dominion, of creation, with the flood. All living things on the earth were destroyed except the family of Noah and the animals that God preserved through Noah. Well, things got better after that, right? No, they didn't. 
The, the one family of Noah multiplied and began again to, to become a whole lot of people. And that whole lot of people gathered in one place. And they had one language. And they determined that they would, that they would make a name for themselves. And they would build a tower to heaven. They had no need of God. This was all about self-exaltation. And so the people and the place that they sought were not ordained by God. They were not in line with God's design because God was not in the picture. And the blessing that they sought had nothing to do with what God calls blessing. And so God again brought the third worldwide cataclysmic judgment. First was the curse, the second was the flood, the third is the scattering. And he, he scattered mankind abroad over the face of the entire earth. I think it's, it's more than incidental that in a world that, world that exalts and seeks and even worships harmony between human beings, God ordained diversity. He ordained the separation and scattering of people as, as a curse, as a curse. In Genesis, in the next chapter, actually at the end of that chapter, chapter 11, we find that God calls this one man out of, the, out of the, the mass of humanity and he determines to create a people for his own possession through that one man. And that man's name at that point is Abram. And in the next chapter, God makes a promise to Abram and to his seed. God says, Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. A few verses later it says, Yahweh, after, after Abram came into that land, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, literally to your seed, singular, I will give this land. In those verses we see the promise of a place, we see the promise of a people, we see the promise of blessing. The people, the seed, I will make you a great nation. Later on, God tells Abram that nation would be in number like the sands of the seashore and like the stars of the heavens. The place, at least the picture of the ultimate place is a place, is a land called Canaan. And then blessed relationship. God says, I will bless you and make your name great. I looked up 815 occurrences of the word name in the Old Testament, and there are only two times that I could find where God said to a man, I will make your name great. One of those men is Abram, and the other is David. And they will both play very strongly into this, into this promise that we're talking about. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, not just the families that descend physically from you, Abram, all the families of the earth. By the end of Genesis, the people promised to Abram, whose name was then declared to be Abraham in Genesis 17, which means father of a multitude, that family consisted, the, 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 the people uh, who had received the promise given to Abram were the family of Jacob. The, the promise was passed from Abram to Isaac, his son, and to Jacob, Abraham's grandson. 
And they came into Egypt because of a famine in the land of promise. And there were 70, and 70 people in total. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, we see that that family of 70 has been in Egypt for 400 years. And they've gone from being 70 people to being somewhere at least, at least a couple of million. 603,550 men from 20 years old and upward able to go out to war. And, and we know that they were prolific in their, in their childbearing from early in Exodus. So if you assume four people families, it gives you a couple of million. That's real, real, real conservative. That nation had spent 400 years as slaves in the land of Egypt. And God raised up a man named Moses to be his instrument to deliver them out of that slavery. Moses was not the deliverer. God was the deliverer. Moses was the instrument. God's promise to Israel through Moses, Genesis 19, you will be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's people. Second place, God will give Israel the land that's promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That promise comes up over and over and over and over. In Deuteronomy alone, the, the, the land is spoken of 185 times. And then the blessing, blessed relationship with God. <laughs> Exodus 29, 45, God says, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. Exodus 29. In chapter 25, before that, God said, build a tabernacle for me according to my design, not yours, and I will be there in your midst. I will dwell there in your midst, and you'll come and you'll meet with me there. In Numbers chapter 9, God says as they set, begin, they're getting ready to set out to go from where they received the law up to the land of promise, God says that he'll go before them into the land as a cloud by day and a fire by night. God is right there. God is with them. Now, fast forward. That's about 1440 to 1400 BC, the giving of the law, and then Israel coming into the land eventually. Long story, don't have time to go into all of it. But he fast forwarded about 1000 BC, and now you have the second of a series of kings. And this man is named David. This king over Israel is named David. And God makes a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. And in that promise, we see these same parts of the promise, because that promise is just a continuation of the promise. Uh, and let me back up. I, and there's something I absolutely got to cover here. And that is the covenant that God made through Moses. There are two kinds of covenants in the Old Testament, unilateral and bilateral. Unilateral means it goes in one direction. Bilateral means it goes in both directions. Three of the covenants that we're talking about this morning, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant are unilateral. God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. The Mosaic covenant was bilateral. God said, I will if you will. God gave Israel the law. He gave them commandments, ordinances. And he said, if you keep these, if you love me, and if you serve me and not other gods, and if you keep my commandments, then I will, I will give you the land, I'll keep you in the land, I'll bless you, I'll defeat all your enemies, and it will go very well with you. But if you don't, 
And whatever generation does it, that, that promise is set aside for them. But the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never stops. It's unilateral. And, and here's what I think is magnificent. We're going to talk about this a lot next week. When it all shakes out, all four covenants are unilateral. Because who keeps Israel's side of the Mosaic covenant? Jesus. Not Israel. Jesus. All right. When we get to God's promise to David, King David, this is, again, about, see, about uh, 400 years later. <laughs> uh, God says to David, now therefore, thus you should, he says to Nathan, the prophet, his faithful prophet, you shall say to my servant David, remember that phrase, my servant David, it'll be very important. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture. David was a, a kid, a teenage shepherd. Uh, shepherd, And he says, I, will, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be ruler over my people Israel and I have been with you wherever you have gone and I've cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make you a great name. There's the second person that God says that to. Like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And then check this out, verse 10. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them. I will plant them. Remember that too. That they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Yahweh also declares to you that Yahweh will make a house for you, David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant. Seed, singular after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. For how long? Forever. forever. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Was Solomon's reign forever? No. This promise was made to David about a descendant of David who would come long after Solomon. At this point, the focus of the promise shifts. It shifts from, from the people to a person. And, and throughout the rest of the prophets, every promise that's made to the people has really, it has in focus a person. It has in focus a person. And that person is the one whose throne will be forever. When you get into the prophets, you start to see this, this next covenant come up. It's a new covenant. God calls it a new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God said, Behold, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I, that I made with their fathers in the days that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, you know, the bilateral covenant, they broke it. Although I was a husband to them. And then he tells them what this new covenant's going to be like. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their heart and I will be their God and they will be my people. And they won't have to, each one tell his neighbor, know God, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. 
And that word know is the, is the word for intimate personal knowledge. It's the same word that God uses in the Old Testament to describe the sexual relationship between a man and a woman. There's nothing sexual about this. What, that is an earthly picture of something infinitely greater. And the infinitely greater thing is the relationship for which God created us. And that is to know him personally, to know him personally, and, and to know him as, as all are good. And God says, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. And then he says, I will forgive their sin and I will remember their sin no more. This again is a unilateral covenant. I will, I will, I will, I will. Next chapter, Jeremiah 32. There's a sort of a paraphrase, a restatement, a few, few things added. They will be my people and I will be their God. It says that again. We see that, we see that wording. I will be their God, they will be my people. They will be my people, I will be their God. We see that over and over and over and over. Guys, it is everywhere, everywhere in the Old Testament, starting in Exodus. And then the place. Concerning this city, he's talking about Jerusalem, I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. You know how many times in the Old Testament God says that he does something with all his heart and with all his soul? Once. And it's right here. I will faithfully plant them in the place that I made for my people and I will do it with all my heart and with all my soul. Guys, that should tell us something about the heart of God. Blessed relationship. <laughs> Jeremiah 32, I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me always for their own good. <laughs> one of the things that Brother Piper talks about in, this, in the book Providence is he, he, he says that, that God's purpose, purposeful sovereignty, which is what Providence is, that he says that it's not at the expense of the good of his people. It is the good of his people. The exaltation of God by God is the very best thing that will ever happen to those who belong to God. The very best thing. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. <laughs> Guys, what will, what will cause a people to exist on earth that does not turn away from God, there's only one answer. God, by his sovereign decree and work, God will create a people that will not turn away from him. <laughs> one of the most stunning books to me in the Old Testament is Zechariah. St. Jerome said that it was, it is the most inscrutable book in the Old Testament. I, I absolutely love the book of Zechariah. I, I could just go back to it over and over and over again, and I do. It's, it's so Christ-focused, it's magnificent. Zechariah 2, verse 10, Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. But it's, I clarify this too. All the talk about Zion, all the talk about the place that God has created for his people is not about the Jerusalem that we know today. It's about a Jerusalem that's coming. It's about a perfected Jerusalem 
a place in which righteousness dwells. It's about, it's about, the, you know, my hope, I happen to be a premillennialist, but my hope is not in a thousand year reign of Christ on earth before the curse is undone. My hope is in the new heavens and the new earth when the curse is undone. My hope is in the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city that comes down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. That's where my hope is. We're going to talk a lot about that in the third message, but I get ahead of myself. <laughs> Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst. And many nations will join themselves to Yahweh in that day and become my people. Not one nation, not just Israel, many nations. Do you realize that in Isaiah chapter 19, God says he's going to send a savior and a champion to Egypt. And he says Egypt will be his people along with Assyria and Israel. See, God told Abram, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's people are going to come from every tribe and tongue and nation. Many nations will join themselves to Yahweh in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst, he says it second time, and you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. Who's talking there? We'll come back to that. And Yahweh will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 8, beautiful chapter. Thus says Yahweh, I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of Yahweh of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, behold, I'm going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west and I will bring them back. And they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, the people in the place. And they will be my people. And I will be their God in truth and righteousness. And then we come to Ezekiel. And I, I haven't put these in chronologically here. Gone by kind of a thematic thing, but this new covenant promise is here again in Ezekiel 36 and 37. God says, and in, this, in chapter 36, what's happening here is that God, Israel, or Judah, has been in captivity for a time. The captivity is going to last 70 years, but it's been going on for a while when this is written. And, and some of them now are coming back from captivity. And God says, God says, uh, while you were away in those nations that I sent you to judge you because you you didn't trust me and you fell for other gods. While you were winning those nations, you had an opportunity to exalt my name, to honor my name in those nations. You could have been a light in the darkness, but that's not what you did. You profaned my name in all those nations where I sent you. And so God says, I will vindicate my holy name now. You didn't, I will. And so it sounds like the hammer's about to fall. And then here's what God says he's going to do. For I will take you from the nations, I will gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. <laughs> I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your fathers. So you will be my people. And I will be your God. And then chapter 37, Ezekiel, this, the passage that ends, that, that I had my brother Jonathan read this morning, passage that ends chapter 37 of Ezekiel is just staggeringly beautiful. <laughs> after saying, after, after saying, take two sticks, to, to the prophet Ezekiel, take two sticks and then put them together and make them one. One labeled Israel, one labeled Judah, the tribes have been divided into two, two groups, Israel and Judah. Now God says he's going to put them back together. God says to the prophet Ezekiel, say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from every side. I'll bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. <laughs> and here's where the person comes in again. One king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. All that will be gone. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and I will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. And my servant David will be king over them. David's been dead for about 600 years at this point. <laughs> My servant David will be king over them. They will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and they will keep my statutes and observe them. And they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons, and their sons' sons, for how long? Forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of shalom with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Do you notice that God says four times, I'll be there with them? Right there in that place? You think that's important? When God repeats himself that many times in a couple of verses? Beloved, in one word, the central promise of the Bible is Emmanuel, God with us. That's what life is. That's what life is, God with us. <laughs> in the great suffering servant, passage in Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, after talking about this one who will be high and exalted, high and lifted up and greatly exalted, but then it says he will be humbled, he will be 
despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, but we did not esteem him. And then it says, he will bear our transgressions on himself. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. But we considered him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. After that, verse 10, it says, after, after that, it says that he, he was taken away. He did not give any offense for himself. He, he, was, he died. He was buried. He was supposed to be buried with, with criminals, but he was buried in the, in, with a rich man. And then we have the promise of the resurrection right here. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring his seed. The seed will see his seed. He will, he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. This is the same person. This suffering servant, this one who will die in our place to bear our sins, is the same one who's promised the long-promised king of kings, the long-promised Messiah in the line of David, the one who will make the promise happen. Isaiah 9, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, there will be no end to the increase of his government, Lord of Peace, on the throne of David, on the throne of David, and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Guys, I, I could go on and on here. I'm almost done, but the prophets, you can, I can't even begin to give you all the passages in one shot in the Old Testament to talk about this person who's going to make the promise happen. He's referred to as the, the branch, the righteous branch. He's referred to as the root of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. And over and over he's referred to as my servant David. Why does God say that? Why does God keep calling him that? Because God made a promise to David that from him would come a descendant whose throne would be forever. Next week, we're going to look at how that whole promise to David continues into the New Testament. I'm not going to read this one, but I'll let you read it. Isaiah 11. It's magnificent. At the end of it, <laughs> uh, the glory of the Lord and the knowledge of God will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. Would I pray that we've been able to just see today, just, just one pass, is that, that God has made a promise, a promise of people, place, and a blessed relationship between himself and that people that he creates for himself. And all of it depends on a person, and that person is spoken of constantly, Constantly, 
from Genesis, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Revelation chapter 20, chapter 22. You could even say it's spoken of when God gives his assignment to Adam and Eve because Jesus is the one who fulfills the assignment. God has made a promise, and the promise is about relationship with God. The promise is about a people for God's own possession in a place that God has prepared for them and God dwelling with that people in that place for all eternity. That's the promise. And the one who makes the promise happen is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. This is the central promise of the Bible. Beloved Father, thank you. Thank you for uh, the magnificence of your precious and magnificent promises that all have the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are all gospel promises, even the ones that were, that were declared so long ago. In fact, decreed before anything existed. These are gospel promises because they are fulfilled in the one and only Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We lift up his name. The day is going to come so soon when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We long for that day. <laughs> and we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.